For decades, Johnson & Johnson has been known not only as the largest healthcare products maker in the world, but the most diversified. It cranked out offerings serving all three major healthcare industry verticals, vaccines and prescription drugs, implants and other medical devices for surgical procedures like joint replacement, and an over-the-counter division containing one of marketing's most envied brand portfolios. That diversification helped J&J weather volatility. When one unit was down, the other two could cushion the blow to the company's overall revenue. But last month, J&J announced a change of course, a plan to spin off its consumer health portfolio into a standalone company. The move expected to be completed in the next 18 to 24 months means J&J won't have iconic OTC brands like Band-Aid bandages and Tylenol pain medicines to fall back on any longer. CEO Alex Gorski said he anticipates the spinoff will leave the biopharma and med device businesses in a better position. Several of J&J's drug maker rivals have also spun off their own consumer health divisions or plan to do so. For decades, we held up J&J as the example of corporate diversification in healthcare. What does the end of the consumer error mean for J&J and the rest of the pharma industry? Following the biggest brand shakeup in J&J's 135-year history, we'll speak with Stephen Robbins, managing partner, principal at the New England Consulting Group and former J&J executive about why the company that was the standard bearer for an RX plus OTC approach decided to uproot one of the most iconic houses of brands in marketing and what its decision signals about corporate diversification as a business strategy in healthcare. Hey, Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mark. Of course. Uh, so last month's announcement that J&J would be spinning off its consumer health portfolio into a standalone company marked the end of an era for a company that sold consumer products for well over a century. You're a J&J alum, having come to the company as part of J&J's acquisition of the Pfizer consumer business in 2006, which brought over Listerine, of course, and were part of the team that designed the new self-care organization in November of that year. Can you put into perspective the importance of the consumer brand portfolio to J&J as a company? Sure. I think the J&J consumer portfolio has represented two things for J&J. One is it's represented a critical mass in the OTC marketplace. And in that it's had, it's built some of the most strongest connections with consumers in the entire world, but it's also traditionally been sort of the soul of the company in that it has been so popular with so many consumers for so long. And as you mentioned, I came over as part of the Pfizer acquisition, Pfizer consumer acquisition, which brought brands like Listerine and Sudafed and Benadryl. And, you know, the company paid a premium for that business. They paid $16.5 billion for Pfizer Consumer, which indicated their commitment to building a the world-class OTC organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the company, of course, founded in 1886, sold medicated plasters, bandages that delivered medicine through the skin, which were painful to peel off. So as, as company history would have it, the firm's chief scientist sent powder to customers to soothe their irritation. And so was born the Johnson's baby powder product line. And, and the rest of the baby line, you know, kind of ensued from there. You know, these brands like Band-Aid and, and Tylenol and, and the baby line created a halo for J&J. How did diversification become an anchor for the company? Well, I think, uh, once again, diversification allowed J&J to communicate with consumers long before DTC pharma advertising was around. And so the way most people got to know J&J was through Band-Aid and Johnson's Baby, and then the other products like Tylenol, which, and then ultimately Listerine, which are also obviously extremely large uh, market leading products. And so first and foremost, I think it was the world's introduction to the business. I think second of all, there was a halo of 
of trust and caring that uh, I would argue no more tears in the, in the shampoo as well as the baby powder brought to all many of our homes, uh, you know, again and again. So it was in a sense, the first step down the road to knowing and getting to know J and J. And in fact, the, the Johnson's baby line was the only one that had the company's name on it, right? So it really did uh, become the face of the company since, since its inception. You talk about the timing of, of the move, uh, you know, the, the announcement to spin off the consumer division. It, it took some by surprise. To, to what extent did recent crises, or would you say like the talc crisis and the opioid crisis, uh, in both of which uh, the company is facing significant uh, or has faced significant legal threats versus slower growth compared to the other two units, make J&J rethink that strategy? Yeah, from my perspective, and uh, I'm sure there will be people, people that will beg to differ with me, I really think this is a story about growth and it's less a story about managing crises for a couple of reasons. The first is in my experience with J&J, and once again, I came as part of an integration that was a very difficult one because of the premium that had been paid. One of the first things I learned about was J&J's credo, what they call our credo. I call it the credo now that I'm not inside, but I can tell you in all the experiences we had, I do think they look to that as guidance. And so what I think has been happening is for a long period of time, for several years now, J&J has been looking to understand how each of the divisions is going to perform long-term. We've gotten to the point where Janssen, frankly, and the pharma group has grown dramatically and the size of the existing size of the medical device group that includes companies like Ethicon and Depuy Synthes is so massive that um, despite bolting on a pretty big consumer portfolio back in 2006 and seven, consumer is really now about 16% of the company only and the growth rates in consumer just do not meet the same levels as those in pharma and frankly, in, in many device categories. So I actually think this was likely a very long thought out process. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of debate around both areas, but I think as we've seen with other companies, this is a company recognizing that to unlock value for their shareholders on one side, the, the split with consumer makes sense. And on the other side, frankly, releasing consumer from some of the constraints that pharma companies and device companies deal with under the pharma guidelines and the AdvaMed guidelines will allow consumer healthcare, which is blurring quite a bit with nutritionals and other holistics to be more competitive. You say the consumer unit only accounted for about 16% of the company's revenues. Meanwhile, it's pharma and medical device equipment business, uh, which makes uh, cancer treatments, vaccines, and surgical tools, is on track for nearly $80 billion in sales this year. But this plan also comes at a moment when the pharma unit faces significant patent expiries in, in coming years. And ultimately deciding to jettison the consumer unit, it's actually following some other big pharma companies that have done the same. You know, you've been inside J&J. What, what's the motivation for a drug maker to make a move like this? Well, I think focus. I mean, if you ask me what the prevailing thoughts are, the reality is, to your point with pharma, actually, in the face of those challenges, you want to make sure that your leadership team is focused on continuing the growth that you've seen up until now and avoiding the impact that patent cliffs can have on these companies. So that, from a, an advantage of less complexity perspective, the ability to focus on those cores, 
without actually trying to, in a sense, feed all of your children um, allows them to to move forward in that way. And, and as I said, I, I do believe there's value that's going to be unlocked on the consumer side as well, because in a world where, and you guys know this pretty well at MM&M, in a world where there's a lot of hybrid marketing, where doctors have become important in more and more OTC categories, the issue of walking, having one rep walk into a doctor's office with a consumer product under those rules, having another rep walk in with pharma rules can be confusing. And in fact, freeing up companies to now operate separately will be an advantage in that place as well. Yeah, it's really interesting from, from a marketing perspective. And the company subsequently held an R&D day where it talked about you know, how it intends to make up the sales shortfall after spinning off the $14 billion consumer division. And it basically involves about a baker's dozen of, of new medicines and new extensions or formulations of existing brands. You know, speaking of, of that, you were involved in a couple of RX to OTC switches. And as you pointed out, when, when you were there in 2006 and, and, they, and they bought Pfizer's consumer unit, it, the company envisioned multiple pipelines possibly springing from that. You know, when we've heard about some of these over the years, Zantec, Zyrtec, what does this move say about the waning significance, if you will, of consumers' role in lifecycle management? Well, I think you, I would include J&J, but I would look beyond them in this case, right? Obviously, GSK is getting ready to spin off their uh, consumer group imminently. Sanofi has announced plans to do the same. And you have Bausch Health splitting, once again, moving the Salix division, which is the primary pharma division, away from the consumer-facing device and OTC brands. And I do think it says that as the industry is looking at the value of that switch, versus the value of, once again, developing a new compound, bringing it through the system and focusing there, you, almost unanimously, you would say, folks have said, that's we're going to do the latter. And while companies like RB Health and Nestle Health find accretive margins in acquiring OTC portfolios and VMHS portfolios, frankly, for, for the pharma companies, um, the margins you see in consumer are not as strong, you know, even on switch, even in the switch world. So, you know, less switches of note, you know, combined with those growth rates and margin rates gets us to where we are today, which is, I think for the moment, it is not in fashion to own a consumer company if you are a pharma company. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, are there others uh, that you feel uh, are imminently, you know, about to do the same thing? Well, I mean, I, you know, and I'm being a little flip when I say this, I'm not sure how many are left of, of, of size, at least, at least in the U.S., but there, there, there are some. I, you know, I think, once again, it depends on the rest of the portfolio. I think there's an interesting dynamic that we see at New England Consulting in our practice, which is obviously when your portfolio changes, your perspective of what a tail brand is versus a, versus a growth rocket brand changes as well. And so, uh, I, there aren't any that are on the tip of my tongue where I think, okay, we're going to hear that announcement next week. But I would say some of the other companies, uh, like some of the Japanese pharma companies that own VMHS uh, products, like PharmaVite's owner in the U.S., those are the kind of companies I'm sure that are doing these portfolio management exercises again and again to make to to, to identify those opportunities. I also wanted to get your take on uh, the fact that you know, the company is uprooting one of the most iconic houses of brands and marketing. What do, you, what do you think its decision signals about corporate diversification as a business strategy in healthcare? 
Yes, and I, I while I think it's cyclical, and, and what I would say is obviously uh, very tough to predict the future around pharma pricing, around the rules, around device, et cetera. But for the moment, I think what it says is the economics and the market doesn't value that diversification. You know, it, to me, one of the intangibles, and I, I still think this makes a lot of sense for unlocking value on both sides, is m- many of these companies that had consumer portfolios as well as pharma portfolios also moved people throughout the company and once again, I'm biased towards marketing, particularly given who I'm speaking to right now. You know, part of that was really building some strength and some muscle in um, bringing consumer thinking to patient marketing and patient thinking to consumer marketing. So I'll, I'll be interested to watch what we see in the future from all of these companies that have that are moving away from consumer and the consumer companies to see what impact that makes on the way they approach their patients and consumers. Right. And that, that sharing of, of knowledge, you know, uh, back and forth uh, was one of the most heralded, if you will, kind of advantages of having, you know, both consumer and prescription under the same roof. And companies, you know, that we, we've heard for years, you know, big pharma companies, even though some of the, them that you mentioned that have parted ways with their consumer units have made big announcements about bringing in more people with consumer backgrounds. You know, because they say absolutely, and, and J and J is one of those that's that's walked the walk. I mean, if you look at their existing leadership team today, in fact, the, the woman Ashley McAvoy, who runs all of the device business, uh, came through McNeil, and I, I I think if I I could be wrong here because she predates me, but but I, I I think she may have even come originally from an agency that worked with them. So she really came through a consumer focused world, and then had the opportunity to learn and understand device and the other divisions and all of those things. Sure. So, so they, you know, as, as companies try to give the consumers more of a, uh, you know, consumer friendly experience, more that Amazon like experience, they don't need to, you know, have a whole consumer unit under their roofs in order to have that expertise. They can just bring in execs that have, say, CPG experience in their backgrounds. Yes. And then be prepared to train them on all the regulatory uh, challenges of coming into a, you know, a category as restricted in marketing as, as pharma is. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for, for, you know, running through all the different, you know, considerations of, of this uh, significant move, you know, both from a marketing, you know, portfolio management and a sort of a, a corporate perspective. Uh, it's really been fascinating. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for the time. I enjoyed it. Absolutely.